Welcome to GMFC Studios, God's production company. Praise the Lord, everyone. I greet each of you in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I just want to thank you for taking time to fellowship with us and to share your time with us as we share with you the word of the Lord. For some watching, it may be painfully obvious that the customary trend of making New Year promises for change have already come to a fiery conclusion. The old adage of crash and burn on yet another year's chance to start the year off right, only to realize that change can be very difficult to accomplish. When I look at the church or the body of Christ, I see so many different theologies that I understand why there is so much confusion in the body as well as outside of the body from those who are waiting for the church to figure it all out. Questions like, who is correct? Am I going to heaven? Is God looking to punish me or does he want to bless me? What can I do with my life and relationships according to God's word? Even on this, the church is split. I spent the better part of the end of 2022 teaching on how it is that God relates and connects with each of us, as well as his desire for us. One of the biggest challenges to our faith is posed as a question. If God is good, why do all these bad things happen? Too many people responding with quick wit or snarky responses to questions like this only serve to further divide the church as well as those who are struggling to understand what it is that God is doing. We've become a me-centered culture and that ideology has infected the church in the form of the prosperity ministry where some teach God only wants to give you stuff. And if it is those things that he gives you that fulfills you and represents his love for you, then something is tragically wrong. Another theology that has frustrated and delegitimized the gospel of Jesus is that God is focused on only dealing with good stuff and allowing you to live as you choose. But what are we to do or what are we to believe are really the questions that are plaguing the church body as well as those that are looking at the church? I remember someone telling me once that when things get too frustrating or confusing, when you're trying to figure stuff out, it's best if you just get back to the basics. What I feel God wants me to share with you is a refresher on our foundation. If the foundation of any structure is worn or tattered, the building which stands upon it will not be structurally sound. In the 13th chapter, in the 23rd verse of the book of Luke, we see the disciples asking Jesus a very interesting question. It says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, I would argue that many of us have asked that very question ourselves and have wondered which of our family members or friends and, and even ourselves will make it in. 
We know that in the end, there will be a multitude of the redeemed from every tribe and every nation that no one can number according to what Revelations teaches us in the seventh chapter and the ninth verse. But this multitude represents only a fraction of the billions and billions of humans that live on this earth. You have to love the way that Jesus responds. He did as uh, was really his custom he didn't answer the question really directly. Jesus took the opportunity, in fact, to just give a warning. Luke, the 13th chapter, the 24th and the 25th verse says this, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, that he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. When you read scripture, you'll find that this was not the only time that Jesus made a statement like this. The frightening truth actually uh, is the way to destruction is broad and that those who enter by it are many. You can check the text, it's, it's in the seventh chapter in the 13th verse of the book of Matthew. But what I take from this is that more people, many more people are going to be lost than are going to be saved. Even with this knowledge, what I see is too many Christian leaders trying to remake Christianity into being something more inclusive of a religion. In essence, what many people are trying to do is make that very narrow road that Jesus talked about a much wider road to travel and to affirm that the salvation of just well-meaning people and even multiple religions are just fine. The unfortunate fact is that many of these so-called progressive Christians advance their cause under the banner of love and compassion for all people. Now this on its face sounds to be like a great thing, but in the process, the hard truths of Christianity are either redefined, ignored, or totally removed altogether. I want to be clear. I'm not opposed to any form of judgmental Christianity, or I am rather opposed to any form of judgmental uh, Christianity that holds to truth without compassion or righteousness without humility. I am completely against any form of Christianity that makes judgments without listening to the entirety of any circumstance or only sees the faults of others without seeing the faults of themselves. As a pastor, my heart breaks for those who hurt, who are confused, and who don't know where it is to turn for the help that they seek. You would think that it would be easy. Just go to church, and everything will be made straight. This, unfortunately, is not the reality in which we live today. Our churches should be sanctuaries for the downtrodden, the oppressed, and the lonely. They should be the ultimate hospital for the soul. The unfortunate reality that we face is much of contemporary Christianity has submitted to the culture that we are in in many areas of life, especially in the matters of sexuality 
And those are at the core of the issue. The only way to make Christianity appealing, at least we're told, is to change what is the standard of Christianity or remove the standard altogether. This means more inclusivity, more affirming, more looking the other way, saying that everything is just okay. Whatever is good for you is good for me. This new added to the uh, church is, uh, is allowing the culture to inform all religious consciousness, transform our thinking, and even raise our children. In essence, we have stopped being submissive to the counsel of God as talked about in the book of Acts, the uh, 20th chapter, and I believe the 27th verse. We've adopted the idea that we have to accept or acquiesce uh, to the culture in order to redeem that very culture for Christ. In the day in which we live, many people use their own judgment as their point of reference. They feel so right about their way of living that they are deaf to calls to rethink their approach to life. To them, it seems like they are making progress. The problem is the progress they are making is on a road upon which they really do not want to travel. Too often I see people using compassion as a get-out-of-jail-free card and approve all types of ungodly lifestyles as a result of it. Some in the body of Christ even tell themselves that we don't witness about our faith because we fear offending someone. So we are silent in the face of political and moral decline because we want to be thought of as really nice people. And I don't want to be seen as being judgmental or offensive. We strive to be politically correct rather than biblically correct. We don't want people to know that the way into the kingdom of God is narrow and there is a cost to following Jesus. Yes, that means that not everybody that comes into the kingdom is going to end up driving a Bentley. While many would try to cause you to believe that God's only desire is to fill you with stuff that at the end of life will go nowhere you're going. There was a Christian poet by the name of Vasily Zukovsky who penned the phrase, we all have crosses to bear and we are constantly trying on different ones for a good fit. In essence, we are all trying to find that lighter cross to bear. I don't want to bear that difficult cross. I can handle a light one. Someone once said that Christianity without courage is actually cultural atheism. That is such a profound statement because Christianity requires courage. If we're going to re-examine our foundation to ensure the building upon uh, it you know, stands is sound, I think we need to take a look at why there is so much unbelief. I think many of us have been down the same road where you are engaged in a conversation with a friend and the topic turns to religion. Your friend is quick to point out that although they are quite spiritual, they are not very religious. Or they'll tell you that they are spiritually inclined, but they reject the notion of man religion. You ask what it is that they believe in, and you receive a half-hearted answer as you begin to then share your faith. 
And as you're sharing your faith and establishing every point that you feel needs to be made, at every point your friend has an objection. First, they reject the idea of religion as a whole. And you respond that you believe more in a relational experience rather than a religious experience. So often we see everyone changing and challenging the Bible. And of course, you have an answer to that as well. Throughout your conversation, you discover a pattern exists. You make a point, they make an objection, you answer the objection, they ignore your answer, and then you move on to something else. As you think about it, you start to ponder how foolish the conversation is that you're really in. How silly, in its entirety, the ultimate conversation results in. I read somewhere where someone called this type of dialogue a cycle of foolishness. This name actually stems from the biblical idea of answering the fool and the frustration of dealing with such foolishness. Now I know that some of you are aghast at the fact that I would say someone or a conversation would be with a fool because we look at that word so harshly. And this may come as a shock to you, but it's not me that's saying it. I know you heard it come out of my lips, but what I'm declaring to you is the Bible actually acknowledges this very cycle with one of the most confounding uh, proverbs that were written. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You can check the text, Proverbs, the 26th verse, uh, verses 4 and 5. I encourage you to check that text, to take a look and see what God is saying. Let's take a look at this text then really uh, quick. In the first instance, after uh, is equivalent to recognizing the foolish supposition and the foolish object, uh, objection of the question itself. In other words, do not accept the foolish supposition or object uh, the fool himself. The Bible declares in Romans, the first chapter and the 18th verse, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So this text informs us about man's spiritual condition in relation to the truth that we are trying to proclaim. Paul makes it clear that our hearers don't have all uh, or, or, or don't have any type of information problem. What they have is a sin problem. This is one of the keys, really, to understanding um, a sure a sure foundation. We are all dealing with sin. Yes, you are born in it, shaped by it, and the only way to get free of it is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Unfortunately, ignorance will play its part in this equation. And even through ignorance, many has come to the place where they believe that it's not a fundamental part of that ignorance because it's not really their issue. Their issue is that they are suppressing the truth about their unrighteousness. If man only had an information problem then it's easy to be remedied. 
you just give them the information that they need but if on the other hand man's primary problem is a sin problem then just having information alone will not be sufficient the answer to sin is not information the answer to sin is repentance repentance is not I'm sorry repentance is not I feel bad about what I've done repentance is a change of course not 360 degrees but 180 degrees in essence repentance is a about face from the condition in which you live this is foundational to what we believe through the power and grace of our savior jesus christ in the first chapter of the book of Romans, the 16th verse, Paul reminds us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Then in the very next verse, he connects that truth to the question of righteousness where it says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You can find that in the 17th verse. Then we read in the 18th verse, men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, our attention should be drawn back to the previous statement that was made in the previous verse, which then begs the question, what is the greatest need of those who are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness? Well, the answer is found in verses 16 and 17, and that answer is faith. I know that everyone is looking for some solid validity to be able to hang their hat on to say without doubt, with, with concrete assurance that what is written is just absolutely true. But the word of God requires faith. Someone once asked me why I believe the Bible. And then they started sharing with me all the things that they've heard about how it was written and who wrote it and who changed it and who did this and who did that to it. And they, they struggle with their ability to believe And my response to them was exactly what I'm telling you today. Reading the word of God requires faith. You see, the spiral of ungodly unbelief is the process whereby men go from the knowledge of God to an unabashed worship of idols. The spiral begins with God's revelation of himself to man. Paul presents this in Romans, the first chapter in the 19th to the 20th verse, where it reads, for can be known uh, about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Now, there are three phrases in this text that support Paul's conclusion that people are without excuse in terms of general revelation. The first is found in the phrase, is plain to them. This reminds us that the knowledge of God that we received is general revelation, does not require unusual effort or elevated understanding. So there goes the idea that the Bible is too hard to understand. 
The second phrase, God has shown it to them, reminds us that general revelation is not something that's hidden or made secret or only for select special few that have been given God's insight to understand what he is saying, what he is doing, and what he has done. God is making it very plain to see. He's not shrouding it with a cloak of secrecy or some level of invisibility. And in the third phrase, has been clearly perceived, tells us that general revelation as found in Romans 1, 18 through 31, cannot be missed by accident. The only way to miss it is for you to suppress it. That's right, people. The only way for you to miss what God is saying in his word is for you to choose to suppress it. Now, if you put all of these three things together, we can see that God has provided a means of knowing about him that requires no special effort. It's not hidden from us. And it cannot be missed unless, of course, you want to miss it. And this is why the Bible clearly states that those who miss it are missing it without any excuse. So the spiral begins when mankind rejects God's general revelation. Your spiral to the road that is wide begins at the inception of your rejection of God's general revelation of his truth. This leads uh, people down a path where they refuse then to honor the God that they know. Understand, they have no excuse. It doesn't necessarily make people sin not having, having an excuse, but when they choose to sin, they don't have an excuse. When you have time, you should read the book of Romans because in the following chapters after the first chapter, Paul is going to point uh, out to the faithfulness of both Jews and Gentiles. And in both cases, they were without excuse, but they ended up righteous as opposed to being sinful. Again, this is uh, what causes you to wonder why. The answer is because they honored God rather than suppressing the truth of God. But those who continue to reject the truth of God by willfully suppressing the knowledge that they have just go from bad to worse. Romans, the first chapter and the 21st verse says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God would and would give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It goes on to say in the 22nd verse, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now the Greek word that's translated fools in this text is the Greek word moros. And it means to become uh, insipid, figuratively to make as a simpleton. In fact, this is the word where we derive our word moron. It's almost funny, but it's not. The Bible is literally saying that men who deny God's existence are morons who are so foolish they actually think that they're wise. I've heard it said like this, they are just smart fools. And we have to understand that foolishness denotes inappropriate behavior, thought, 
or speech, both of single lapses of sense as well as in the sense of a permanent attribute about someone's character. Another way of saying it, people who claim to be wise apart from God are not just acting foolishly in the moment, they are demonstrating the lifestyle and the worldview that they have adopted and that impact is uh, devastating upon them. The idea behind the word moros is that there is a power which dominates man. That power is sin. In essence, his foolishness is beyond his comprehension or control. He asks foolishly, but believes that his foolishness is actually wisdom. We have to remember this when we are uh, engaging people who fit this description. Because what sounds foolish to us actually sounds wise to them. In essence, while we're asking ourselves if the person that we're talking to really believes the foolish things that they are saying, they are actually thinking to themselves, do we really believe the foolishness that we're saying? Understanding this will have an impact on both our expectations as well as our perspective. Oftentimes I talk with my wife and we share things with each other and uh, sometimes she gets frustrated about uh, things that people do because she has a high expectation about people who confess to be children of God, yet they do things that are just unwise. What you really need to understand is that you are dealing with fools, but not in the sense that we look down on people or despise them, but in the sense that we recognize their blindness to the truth. You see, knowing this changes the way that we define success. If I define success as being able to talk to people on their terms, then I will adopt foolishness as a starting point. Anytime you start a conversation on the terms of a fool, your conversation's starting point has become what you've adopted. But if I define success as exposing and refuting the foolishness of the fool, then I will adopt God's truth as my starting place. You see, we must never forget that we're dealing with people who believe they're not the fool, we're the fool. Now this will disabuse us of all notions of gaining cool points in the eyes of fools who think themselves wise as a direct result of their rejection of the one true God. The manifestation of man's foolishness came in the form of idolatry as mankind exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and all kinds of creeping things. This is what is explained in Romans, the first chapter and the 23rd verse. Clearly, this must be understood in light of God's command against idolatry in his Decalogue. The use of imagery like birds and animals and creeping things corresponds directly to the prohibitions that are found in the second commandment. Yes, God did not destroy the Ten Commandments. Jesus came and fulfilled them. 
And in the second commandment, you shall not make for yourselves a carved or graven image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You can see the references to this in Exodus, the 20th chapter, the 4th through the 6th verse, and in Deuteronomy, the 5th chapter, the 8th through the 10th verse. God's universal, transcendent, perpetual moral law lay at the foundation of every aspect of man's downward spiral into a place of unbelief, unrighteousness, and ungodliness. Paul's statement about man's idolatry, which is a violation of the first law, is followed by his explanation of man's uncleanliness, which is a violation of the second law. In essence, vertical sin has become horizontal sin. I heard it said once, we become what we worship. In fact, God created us as image bearers. We are containers, as I've shared with you in 2022, that house the excellency and the glory and the power of God. We carry the very image or the visage of God. God created us as image bearers. We are made in his image to reflect his glory. And when we turn that worship in another direction, we do not cease to be what we were created to be. We simply pervert our reflection as we worship we are conformed to the image of the one or the ones to whom we have given our allegiance our adoration our time our talent our treasure and our abeyance it only makes sense as we continue in the first chapter of Romans to read therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves Romans the first chapter uh, and the 24th verse since this is a reflection of the of the idols to which man's attention has been turned and to remove any doubt as to why this happens Paul adds to this because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen Romans the first chapter in the 25th verse declares this it is this exchange of true worship for idolatry that leads directly to mankind's indulgence of his ungodly appetites anything born of your flesh is ungodly any desire of your flesh is not of God the flesh is enmity against God and the things of God. As we uh, have been looking at the first chapter of the book of Romans, if this introduction of the idea of man's indulgence of his lust seems to imply sexual immorality as the chief means of expression, the next phrase in the downward spiral of man leaves no doubt. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions 
for the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error check the text Romans the first chapter the 26th through the 27th verse this is what God's word declares now this is slightly different than the previous verse which pointed to a general indulgence in sexual sin. This reference points explicitly to a sexual sin known as homosexuality. I heard it argued that this was due to the fact that homosexuality functions as the best illustration of that which is unnatural within the sexual sphere. I know that in our current contemporary political uh, environment, this is a very volatile statement. However, I'm bound to the truth of God's word. The facts are undeniable from a biblical and a theological perspective. Homosexuality mars our view of the image of God by denying the complementary relationship that exists between men and women. What it does, it denies procreation, one of the very principal purposes for which God designed marriage and sex. It blasphemes the illustration of Christ's self-sacrificing love for his church. It violates clear commands of scripture. While all sexual sin is an expression of idolatry, homosexuality is a step even further down the road of depravity. But it's not the last step. You see, that final step in the road uh, of your downward spiral of mankind happens when men lose their minds and throw off all restraint. I believe that we're beginning to see the effects of this very thing in our current culture today. Laws are even changing and moral things that were once considered immoral are now moral. We have uh, crossed the barriers of sexual immorality. So at, at this stage, all bets are off. This drives us to what the results will be as listed in the word of God. Where it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. That's found in Romans, the first chapter and the 28th verse. And just so that there was no confusion, Paul goes on to give practical examples of what it looks like when this final barrier is crossed. As I read this text to you, think in your mind if some of this is what you're seeing in our culture today. Romans, the first chapter, the 29th through the 32nd verse declares, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. I see this every day. Evil. I see this every day. Covetedness, malice, I see this every day. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. I see this every day. They are gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I see this every day. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
Now the phrase, though they know God's righteous decree, is an obvious reference to the law of God. Paul makes it clear that there is an objective standard that's involved in Christianity. Men are not merely doing things that are not profitable. They are actually violating the law of God. Grace does not remove the law of God. Paul is not just frustrated against those who practice such immorality. As we read, we find that when using the phrase, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. He makes it clear the failure to expose or condemn such action is equally vile in the sight of God. This reminds me of my brothers and sisters who stand in the pulpits across this nation and across this world who refuse to talk against sin, who refuse to declare what is right and what is wrong, who refuse to go against popular culture, who refuse to go against the power that is in play. To sit back and to say nothing or to do nothing is just as bad as those that are doing what God is commanding them not to do. You see, there is so much more that has been said about this section of the book of Romans, but there are just a few things I want to point to your attention to before I close out. First, it is important to remember that God has informed us of the true condition of our hearers. Mankind is not as rational as we'd like to think they are. No matter how intelligent we may think our hearers are, God says that they are fools. And they're not just fools, they are deceived fools who think they're wise. They are immoral fools who think they're righteous. The key to remember is that we must refuse to be intimidated by them. If you look at the way things are going now, anyone that speaks against the current climate, that very climate tries to intimidate them to either acquiesce to be silent or to ultimately agree with what it is they do. But we as the children of God must refuse to be intimidated for greater is he that is with us than he that is within in the world. Mankind is not too wise for God just to uh, you know, see things their way. The problem is, is that mankind thinks it's too wise for God. They think that they're wise enough to know their own good, to know what is right and what is wrong. Second, you must remember that God has informed us that those that hear have a great need. Their greatest need is not the answer to their many questions, but it is the gospel, the same gospel that saved you. The same gospel that saved Paul. The same gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is found in the book of Romans, the first chapter, the 16th verse. Everything we do and say must be centered upon the gospel. Otherwise, it will be insufficient. What good does it do for me to convince a man that the earth is young in age if I don't convince him that he is a sinner in need of a savior? What good does it do to reason with a man in an effort to win him to, to theism if, they, uh, if theism remains undefined? 
mind for them? What good does it do to convince a man that Jesus really lived if I don't tell him that Jesus really died and really rose again? What good does it do if I walk away from an interaction having won an argument but lost a soul? In my conversations, I'm not proposing an either-or proposition. In each of these instances I've described to you, I actually want both. I want to convince people that the earth is not billions and billions and billions of years old as I point them to the creator and the lawgiver whose image they bear and whose law they've broken. I want people to see the truth of theism as I point them to the one true God. I want them to know the historicity of the life of Jesus and his resurrection as well as the implications that both have for their life and their eternity. In short, I want to win the person, not just the argument. The only thing that can accomplish this is the gospel. Third, I want you to remember that God has already showed us what the response may be. I'm too often amused by people who ask me for ways to share the gospel without offending people. I, I want to share the love of God, but I don't want to offend anybody when I do it. Imagine this with your mind's eye. People are riding along enjoying their life when all of a sudden here we come. We slow them down. We tell them that they're wrong and offer uh, a level of correction. This is, there, there is no way uh, to do this without risking some offense. In fact, every effort we make to be sweet and polite can often be the very flame that lights the fuse on an already volatile situation, tiptoeing around the dandelions only to cause the field to catch on fire. Just to this point, John the third chapter and the 19th verse tells us that the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because because their works were evil. Jesus declared this very powerful statement in John 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. When you try to be loved by the world, it will often lead to a compromise. We cannot ever compromise our faith. We do not wish to be more offensive than necessary, but the actual fact that we speak truth to lies will be offensive. Just make sure that when you offend, you are offending with the gospel. Let me close with this. God has informed us of the fate of our hearers. And this is really important. You see, these are people who deserve to die. Romans, the first chapter, 32nd verse. And I know that that sounds harsh, but this is what the word of God declares. This is not simply a reference to the Mosaic law and its civil penalties for the aforementioned sins we talked about. This is something far worse. 
These people deserve the second death that's discussed in Revelation, the second chapter, and the 11th verse, the 20th chapter, and the 6th verse. These people deserve hell. Unless we be puffed up with pride, this list in Romans 1, verses 29 to 32, reminds us that we too, who have come to the knowledge of truth, truly deserve hell. The point here is to give us a sense of urgency, not a sense of superiority. When I look at the word of God, I often find that the word of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament does a lot of foreshadowing, does a lot of reference making. When you look at uh, Abraham uh, taking his son up into the mountain to sacrifice him, we know that he did not go through with the act, but it was a foreshadowing of Jesus uh, coming into the world, God sending his son, his only begotten son to be sacrificed for man. You see this type of thing repeated throughout scripture. So I think back to creation. God is God. Nothing is impossible for God. So then God could have just blinked his eye and everything that is would come to be. He didn't need to take six specific days to create anything. God could have just simply said it is and then everything that is would come to be. But God in this word describes to us a process that he took six days so the question that has to be asked is that reflective as he has written his word that it's really a foreshadowing of something else I shared with a friend sometimes when you study the word of God you have to look beyond just the physical words that are on the page and see what God is saying behind the words as we look at the six days and we understand that according to the word of God, a day to God is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as of, uh, of a day. We find then that if God is telling us something yet again in the creation account, then mankind may only have 6,000 years before the seventh day which is the thousand year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ the new Jerusalem here on the earth that means the foreshadowing of what is to come we are in that time period we are in that period that's very close to the six thousand years of man we don't have time any longer to play political games, to play religious games, to play I want to be nice games. I've come to tell you that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ in the parting of your sins, you need to get to know him for the time is short and God is crying out for you. He sent his son to die for you. Not so that we can do what we do and be who we be but that we might be who he called us and created us to be and do what he called us and created us to do today is an opportunity for you to get to know the Lord I encourage you to find a church 
to go somewhere. I don't want to tell you to repeat after me and then tell you, give you the false hope that you're saved and, and nothing has changed in your life. You need to connect with somebody, a true believer. You need to find a church or somebody that can speak into your life and minister God's grace to you and help you get to know who God is to receive the love of God so you can truly be saved. So that in that day that is coming, when the sky opens, you will not be left here to suffer the wrath of God upon this place. It's time for us to get back to the basics and stop suppressing the things of God to live out the things of man. We must crucify the things of man so that we can live out the things of God. Know that I'm praying for you, that I love you, and I stand here and I declare these things to you because this is what God has commanded me to do. Take counsel in the word of God alone. Put your faith back in Christ and receive his love. God bless you. Have an awesome, awesome Sunday. This has been a production of the GMFC Studios. God bless you.